Okay, I'm going to go ahead and have everybody turn to Galatians 3, and I'll go ahead while you're turning there and introduce myself. Those of you who don't know me or don't know me all too well, my name is Devin. I've been worshiping here at Grace Covenant with my family for about the last nine, ten months, um, and Brother Josh has asked me to cover this week. We're in this transitional period from the book of Ephesians to the book of Mark, and uh, just like Pastor Ryan last week, I was given the kind of the free reign to pick a passage of my choosing um, to the probably relief of Pastor Josh. I, I, that's kind of be a bit of a dangerous proposition. I didn't pick some obscure text like the Nephilim in Genesis 6. I'm actually saving that one for a rainy day. Um, what I actually picked was this section out here of Galatians 3. And I picked it for one about two reasons. One of them is that this is actually a text that I've handled before. And preparing this sermon during the time when my second daughter was about to be born, it seemed like the easy choice to make. Um, but the other reason I picked this text is I've thought it through and have been challenged by it and uh, very challenged by it, is what occurred to me as I was preparing this is, is knowing that here at Grace Covenant, one of the more treasured uh, one of the most treasured things we want to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, that we want to proclaim here is rest in Christ. That is kind of our, we want to always continuously point people back to Christ. This is to be a refuge for saints who are weary to rest in Christ. And what we have here in Galatia, for the church in Galatia, is we have a church who's having their rest in Christ challenged. The church in Galatia is having false teachers come in to proclaim a false gospel, and the Galatians are wavering in, this, in their rest in Christ. And the error of this false gospel, what really comes down to it, the error actually seems very biblical. And that's the really deceptive thing about it. It seems very biblical, though dangerous and sinister that it is. What, who these people were were Judaizers. And what they were coming in to do was proclaim that in order for one to be justified by justified before God and be considered a child of God, what they had to do was obey the old covenant Mosaic law. And what Paul does, Paul corrects this by bringing up that the promise to Abraham is the fix for this. What Paul brings up is that what this, what this false gospel is falling short in is failing to recognize the promise to Abraham. And these Judaizers are distorting for the Galatian church two things. What they're distorting is the relationship that a believer has with the law. The second thing they're distorting is the grounds for our identity as children of God. So now that I've kind of introduce this text. Let's go ahead and read it. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Starting in verse 19, we'll be going to verse 29. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. 
For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You may be seated. Okay. Well, as we've read this text, there's probably a couple things you may have noticed about this text, and at least a couple things, if you haven't, that I want to draw your attention to. And one of them is that this is actually a very long section of Scripture. This is a very dense section of Scripture. So we have our work cut out for us if we're going to get through this in an hour. The second thing I want to point out is this is actually a very challenging section of Scripture. And the reason it's challenging is because what it does is it actually challenges maybe a bit more of a simplistic view of the law. We as believers recognize that there is a goodness to God's law that we would affirm. It comes from the goodness of God. It is the righteous, holy standard of God. But yet here we have Paul in this section speaking of the law in somewhat of a negative way. The law is kind of being cast in a negative light here being cast as a prisoner, a captor, a guardian. And so we have, we have to kind of do some work to interpret this because we want to at the same time affirm the goodness of God's law, but be able to explain the purpose of the law and how the law functioned to the old covenant nation of Israel. The other challenging thing about this passage is that one of the most trickier passages in the entire New Testament rests in this section. I'm talking about the one with angels in the intermediary. That is one of the trickiest passages in the entire New Testament, and it's very difficult to interpret. So the other thing that I want to draw your attention to is that we have actually entered into this section in the middle of the conversation. See, Paul is, is actually his argument against the Judaizers is already in full swing. So what we're entering into the, 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 whole, the whole conversation is already going. We're entering right here into the middle of it. And starting in verse 19, we see that Paul opens up. His, opens up. Well, he's been opened up, but our section opens up with Paul asking a question. And the question he asks is, why then the law? Now, if you've ever read Paul, if you've read Paul in Romans, what Paul will typically do, especially when he is explaining something that's challenging, what Paul will often do is raise questions. He'll raise questions that he expects his readers to be asking if they are understanding him correctly. And one of the ways you can actually know if you're interpreting Paul correctly is if you follow along with what he's saying and you can actually understand why that question is being asked. And right here, what Paul expects the Galatian church to be asking is what is the purpose of the law? What was the point of the law? 
See, what Paul has said before challenges this whole, the whole idea of the existence of the law. And what Paul has been doing since the beginning of chapter 3, Paul has been laying out the, this contrast between the promise given to Abraham and the law. Paul has been laying out the superiority of the promise over the law by demonstrating, one, how they got the Spirit by the law, by, sorry, by faith, not by works of the law. Paul contrasts the blessing of faith and the cursing of the law. And then Paul goes on to explain the priority that the promise has over the law because the promise came first. And so here we at this point, we see, the, we see Paul anticipating this question because what Paul has done so far is he's made the law seem like it's almost pointless. What is the point of the law at this point then if it was always about the promise? If we were always to be justified by faith, it was never about the works of the law. If the law always cursed us, what was the point of the law? And here we kind of get into the trickier section of this passage. Paul gives an answer, and he doesn't qualify it. He says, it was given because of transgressions. Now, the word transgression is actually a, a very interesting word choice here. Because what the word transgression implies, the definition of it is to pass beyond the limits. The idea is, is that a transgression means that there is a set standard, an explicit standard or ordinance that has been broken. The idea is, is that a transgression cannot be a transgression unless there's a standard. And so if you want, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 4, and we'll see Paul kind of explain this idea of a transgression. All right, Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 14. For if it is the inheritance of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So notice what Paul says here. In order for there to be a transgression, there has to be a law. So what Paul is not talking about here, Paul is not talking about the law being given in order to restrain transgressions or prevent them from happening. Paul's not referring to the idea of the law just being given as a rule book. See, the thing is, is the thing is, is that one that presents a bit of a logical problem. Because if the idea is that God is trying to prevent transgressions from happening, there's no need for the law. If there's no law, there is no transgression. But also, it also just does not gel well with Paul's argument throughout the rest of this section. If we were to take this interpretation of uh, this passage, we, we actually would have this verse that just seems to stand out and doesn't really seem to make sense in the context. So what, what, what's going on here is what Paul is explaining is, is the purpose of the law. And this is our first point of today, the purpose of the law. The law was given to reveal the character of sin. This is the purpose of the law. When God introduces the law, he opens the possibility of transgressions to occur. Now, why would God do that? Why would God present a law simply for the fact for transgressions to be possible? And the re reason is, 
This law was given to Israel, God's chosen covenant nation. Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt, delivered through the great mighty works of God through the Red Sea, and were chosen to be a holy people, a kingdom of priests. They were the one nation that God has ever called his son, but the the nation of Israel had one humongous problem. The problem with Israel was that they were a stiff-necked, hard-hearted, obstinate, rebellious people. This is the testimony of the entire Old Testament from beginning to end. Israel is a sinful people. Israel had not even gotten the sand of Egypt out of their robes yet before they were already committing idolatry. It is so stark on the pages that it's almost comical at times. And the problem is that the Jews in Jesus' day had missed what the law was supposed to do. The law actually is given to reveal the sinfulness of Israel, and Israel missed it. You have Jesus constantly fighting back and forth with the Jews of his day, Jews who think that by having the law and by works of the law and by their identity as children of Abraham, they are the righteous people of God. The Jews at this time had failed to hear the message of the law. The message of the law is that you are a sinner. That is the message of the law. It is given to reveal our iniquity, our rebellion. The law is given to us as a mirror. It's meant to reveal the dirt and grime that we are covered in from our sin and rebellion. The law is to give a diagnosis that we are sick. I'm reminded of a testimony of a dear brother who used his own testimony to illustrate this perfectly. This dear brother was struggling for a long time. He was beginning to grow blind, partially blind. And he went to doctor after doctor after doctor, and no one could tell him what was going on. And finally, he went to one doctor who was able to figure out the issue. And this brother had a very large brain tumor. And what the doctor said is this, you are terminally sick, and I can't help you. This is what the law does. The law is meant to give us this diagnosis that we are a sinful people, and the law is meant to tell us that the law can't help us. Just in the same way that we don't use a mirror to clean ourselves when we see in the mirror that we're dirty, we also don't use the law when the law reveals that we are wicked. See, the law to the people of Israel was not good. Now, don't get me wrong, hear what I'm saying. The law is good. It is the good, objective, righteous, holy standard of God. But the law does not speak a good word to Israel. And even the goodness of the law to Israel is bad news. See, what we must recognize first, brothers and sisters, in recognizing the first purpose of the law is recognizing that when the law comes to a person for the first time, the law comes revealing the condemnation of God against sin. This is the first use of the law. This is the first introduction a man has with the law, revealing that they are in desperate need of a Savior. We must recognize that the message of the law, hearing the message of the law rightly, this is paramount to understanding our need for a Savior. 
it is paramount, it is a, as imperative importance that we recognize our sin so that we can recognize the need for a Savior, a Savior from our sin. The law gives us this diagnosis. The law gives us this condemnation. The law gives us it as a mirror revealing that we are sin-covered. This is the first purpose of the law. And then we go over to the next half of verse 19, and then in verse 20, and we see Paul here make a very interesting statement. It, it, it's kind of hard to see, actually, how these two phrases actually connect. The law was added because of transgression. Until the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was given through angels by an intermediary. It's hard to see how these things fit together. And it's also one of the most difficult passages to interpret. But I think, I've, I've read a commentator speaking on this passage. He had said he doesn't even know. He doesn't even know how to explain the idea of the law being delivered through angels. But I think, I can, I think if we look at the context of Paul's argument, we can understand this. So first, looking at the next part of verse 19, until the seed should come. Remember to take note again of how Paul answered the question. He said the law was added. Meaning that before the law came, there was something else there. The promise to Abraham. This has been Paul's argument since the beginning of chapter 3. And then we are given this next troubling word, until. And what's going on there? The law had a purpose, and when Christ comes, that purpose is fulfilled. See, in the broader argument that Paul is making, there has always been this contrast between the law and the promise. And this passage is no different. This passage is also Paul explaining its contrast between the law and the promise. And here's how he's doing this. He's explaining the difference in how the law and the promise was given. Notice first how he says the law was given. It was, given through, it was delivered through angels through an intermediary. Now to touch briefly on what the angels were, what this idea of angels. If you look back in Exodus 19, you don't actually see any mention of angels being present when God gives the law. But what we have is New Testament commentators speaking of this passage, this instance where God gives the law, and they speak about angels being present there. We don't see it in the immediate context. We just have biblical commentary on that passage. And that's about all we can really say about the angels delivering the law. That's about all we can really know. And I'll give you some cross-references if you'd like them. Psalm 68, 17 and Stephen's sermon to the Jews in Acts 7.53. So the law was delivered through angels, and I, it's hard to see the significance of that statement. And then the law was given through an intermediary. So the inter intermediary that's being referred to there is Moses. Now, it's, it's, it's significant to bring up how Moses became the mediator of the law. See, back in Exodus 19 and 20, you can turn there if you wish. If you want to look, I'm going to be kind of summarizing. If you want to follow along, feel free. Back in Exodus 19 and 20, 
right before God gave the law, he descended onto Mount Sinai, and it was terrifying. There was fire and thunder and lightning, the blast of a trumpet. The mountain was wrapped in smoke, and it quaked beneath the presence of the Lord. And when the Lord spoke from the mountain, the people trembled and begged that no further word be spoken to them. Instead, what they did is they asked Moses to speak to the Lord on their behalf because they could not bear the commands that were given to them. They couldn't bear the voice of the Lord. They begged that he would not speak to him further. So Moses in that instance became the mediator between God and the people of Israel. And the fact that there needed to be a mediator with the law is really telling. It tells us something about the character of the law. And we need to note what the contrast Paul is setting up here is between the law and the promise and how they were given. Let's take a look at the promise to Abraham and how that was given. So what Paul says is that the law was given the intermediary and the angels. It implies that there are many. But the last half of verse 20 Paul says, God is one. And, we, and this is going to take just a second to grasp the significance of this. So the law was given through many angels and a mediator, but the promise, how was the promise given? Well, first we had the Lord appearing to Abraham back in Genesis 12 in a vision. And, communic and he communicated the promise directly to him. His in him, his offspring, all the nations would be blessed. And we also see at times that the Lord himself actually ate and dined with Abraham. There was a clear fellowship that the Lord had with Abraham that very much was not present at the giving of the law. The, the giving of the law, this whole demonstration of God's power descending on Mount Sinai, communicated this chasm that existed between the people of Israel and God. The people were not even allowed to go up to the mountain to even look at God, lest his wrath break out among them. But the Lord himself dines with Abraham. He dines with him. And in Genesis 15, the Lord actually entered into a covenant with Abraham to, in a sense, promise to fulfill the promise he gave. And the Lord had given the promise to Abraham, saying, By myself I have sworn. See, just to tie this all together, I will invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 27. I'll be reading it um, as well. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the uncircumcised by faith and the, un the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So note, so note what this contrast is trying to say. I want to kind of tie this all together, this long explanation about the law in Abraham. I know that, that was a ton of information, so let me just try to tie it together. See, if righteousness was by the law, 
according to Romans chapter 3, then what that would mean is that God is the God of the Jews only. It would mean that us Gentiles would still to this day be living in exile as foreigners, as strangers, having no hope without God in this world. That is the implication of righteousness being by the law. And then you had the law. The law was given to Israel, and it only had Israel in view. But the promise from the beginning to Abraham concerned all the nations. The God of Israel was not just to be only the God of Israel. He was to be the God of all the peoples of the earth. The promised offspring to Abraham, to whom would bless the nations, it is supposed to be in him that all the nations are blessed. And note also that this, the law was given through a mediator. It communicated the, sinfulness, communicated the sinfulness of man and the wrath of God against sin. But the promise given directly to Abraham by God himself, Abraham, when he heard this promise, believed God and he was accounted righteous. Paul is highlighting here at the last part of verse 19 and 20 is the superiority that the promise takes over the law. See, the Jews failing to hear the law rightly, believing themselves to be the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. They believed that they themselves was the fulfillment. They were the children and the descendants of Abraham. They believed themselves to be the fulfillment of that promise. But the problem is, the law couldn't bring the offspring that was to bless the nations. The law only revealed our need for him. It revealed our need for a righteousness from something else besides the law. We needed the righteousness of faith that Abraham had. That comes through the promise. The failure of the Jews to hear the law resulted in the Jews not responding correctly to the law. To see their need of a Savior and to recognize that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. The application for us in this passage, this very difficult to interpret passage, is to respond rightly to the law. This is the twofold purpose of the law, to reveal our sin and to point us to our Savior. This is what the law was given for. To hear the law rightly is to recognize your sinful condition. To respond to the law rightly is to take refuge in your Savior. See, there are ways to respond wrongly to the law. I, I, I love hymns. I love the, the succinct way that hymns can communicate these glorious truths of the gospel. And one, one hymn that I just, is one of my favorites is the hymn, Come Ye Sinners. In this hymn, there's a line in this hymn. It says, if you, this whole hymn is about inviting sinners to come to Christ. There's a line in there that says, if you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. See, the, the a wrong response to the law would be to see your sin and to think that through the law, you can make yourself more acceptable to come to the promise. That is a wrong response to the law. If you are seeking to, by the law, have a righteousness through which you would be accepted by God, you will never arrive at that point. The law will never get you there. 
Instead, we should, as the hymn writer of Rock of Ages says, we should foul fly to the fountain. When the law reveals how foul we are, we recognize our need for a savior, we go right to him. We don't tarry. We don't wait until we're better. We don't wait until we actually have a deeper righteousness under the law. We go to the only person who can save us from the condemnation of the law. This is to respond rightly to the law. So we have seen the, the purpose of the law, the why the law was given. The why of the law is to reveal sin and to point us to our Savior. Now, we're going, now Paul is going to get a lot more specific. He's going to give us another question, and he's going to actually start going into more detail about how the law actually serves this purpose. So Paul, first, first and foremost, goes into, he asked this question, is the law contrary to the promises of God? So try to sympathize with why this question is being asked. Paul has just explained what the function of the law is and the superiority of the promise. It is natural to ask at this point because Paul's treatment of the law in this section has come across negatively. It seems very contra Psalm 19. The law does not seem sweeter than honey right now. But Paul's answer to that question is an emphatic no. So there's an assumption behind this question. And that assumption is, is that the law was plan A and it failed. And so Jesus had to come as a plan B. That's, that's completely false. The law never served that purpose. The law was never meant, as we look over in verses 21, the law was never meant to give life. Probably should turn back to the passage I'm actually looking at. I'm still in Romans 3. So the law was never meant to give us life. That wasn't the purpose it served. The law served a purpose, and it served that purpose wonderfully. So we're looking here at verse 22, where Paul is going to explain to us how the law functioned. First, Paul says this, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Looking at verse 23, Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So this is the first function of the law. The law is a, a captor. This is the imprisonment of the law. This is how the law functions in revealing our sin by imprisoning us under it. So how does this work? How does it work that the law imprisoned everything under sin? To understand this, we need to understand something about the covenant in which the law was given. When God gave the law to Israel back in Exodus 19, he said, they would be a treasured possession among all peoples and a kingdom of priests if, if they would obey his commandments. The law was part of a covenant, and the requirement was that Israel 
was to keep the statutes and commandments of the Lord. The covenant offered life and blessing for obedience, death and cursing for sin, for disobedience. And Israel in Exodus 24 confirms this covenant. They hear the terms of this covenant and they say, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. And by the sprinkling of blood of oxen, Israel, now signed by blood, is in the covenant, in this covenant with the Lord, where they are obligated to, to, to give to the Lord the obedience he has commanded at the penalty of death. They are now obligated to this covenant. And because they're obligated to the covenant, they are obligated to the law. But as any Israelite who has ever come up against the laws found out, fulfilling their end did not come so simply. Righteousness is not so simple of a matter. The problem wasn't the standard. The standard was good. The problem was something far deeper than that. So turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 7. We're going to be we're in Romans a lot. Romans is kind of a parallel book to the book of Galatians. Looking at verses 7 through 9. So what Paul is explaining here in Romans is explaining this new relationship that believers have to the law. Paul's explained that the law held captive. He uses the analogy of marriage, explaining that once the spouse dies, they are freed from that spouse. In the same way, now that Christ has died for them, they are freed from their obligation to the law. And so what Paul does here is he explains the effect that the law had on him. He says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, I had not been, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What Paul is describing here is, not, is sin, not just the action of sin, but the nature of sin. The nature of sin that the law was meant to always reveal. The, the nature of sin is like a hornet's nest, and the law comes in like a stick and just whacks it. And this, Paul says, is by design. Look at verse 13 of Romans 7, if you're still there. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. See, it wasn't that the law wasn't... That the law wasn't good. It was the law demonstrating the absolute sinfulness of sin. 
And in case you haven't catched on, this is a big problem if you're in a covenant where you're required to obey at the penalty of death. This is the captivity and imprisonment of the law. The law binds you and obligates you to obedience, but the law does not provide to you the means to fulfill it. The law actually instead provokes a sin in you to demonstrate just how bad it is. See, this is the, this is the plight of Adam's race since the garden. This isn't something that's just simply unique to Israel. This nature of sin exists in, human, in humanity since the fall of Adam in the garden. When Adam disobeyed in the garden and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he plunged every member of his race into sin. Every human being, Jew and Gentile alike, lives in slavery to sin as heirs of the disobedience of Adam. What the law demonstrates is that there is no going back to the garden through works. That way back to God has been closed off and shut since the fall. The tree of life being guarded by a cherubim with a flaming sword, to pick up this imagery that Samuel Ranahan says discussing this, the more you try to make your way back to the tree of life through your works, the more that flaming sword just hacks you to pieces. The law removes all hope that through it you might be justified. And then we come to a second use of the law. The second function of the law is the stewardship of the law. Now, your, your translation might be a little bit different. Mine says guardian. This is just the joy of having multiple English translations. This is one word especially that's just, it just varies across the board. But what the, the word is in the Greek is pedagogue. I'm not going to go crazy with the Greek. I just want you all to understand what the significance of this word is. The pedagogue, the idea of a pedagogue is an idea of a steward. It is a, a person hired by a family to steward and supervise the children. They were responsible for protecting them. They were responsible for supervising them as they walked to and from their errands, and they were responsible for educating them. And when the children reach adulthood, the pedagogue has fulfilled its purpose. And Paul likens the law to a pedagogue. In the last part of verse 22, Paul says that the law imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise might be given to those who believe. Paul is stating in plain terms that the first purpose of the law to reveal our sin is for the second purpose of the law to point us to the promise that we, namely, that we would be justified by faith, that we would receive the promise by faith. The law in its entirety revealed day by day the reality of sin and the need for a Savior. The law in its entirety pointed back to the promise and then pointed forward to the day when that promise would come. The law in clear terms shows that the nation of Israel itself was not the fulfillment of the promise. Because it's, it's impossible to be a blessing to all the nations when you are under the curse of the law. It's not possible. 
So we come now, we've understood the two functions of the law. So how does it, what does it mean for us? What does these functions of the law mean for us? Remember what I had said before, that the problem these Judaizers, what these Judaizers were doing was they were distorting the relationship the believer has to the law. Paul is explaining all of this to correct that. But the Galatian church, what they have done by, re- by going back to the Mosaic law, the old covenant law, is they have gone back into captivity. They have gone back into the imprisonment of the law. Later on in Galatians 5, Paul is actually going to say that they have become severed from Christ by doing so. Now, I'm not going to get into what that means. What Paul has been trying to say from the beginning, the law brings a curse. When you are in Christ and you go back to the law, you're just going back to what curses you to begin with. So the Galatian church, they heard the message of the law rightly. They responded rightly to the law, and they went right back into the law. The warning here should be apparent. We need to understand the promise rightly and not go back into the captivity of the law. See, something that I see is so endemic in the church today, something that I've seen more today than I think I've ever seen in my 11 years of knowing the Lord, is I see believers who live as captives under the law. What happens is, is that at some point in time for these believers, their eyes, they, 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 they saw Christ, they saw their need for a savior, but at some point in time, their eyes drifted back to themselves, their eyes drifted back to their obedience. And the Christian life for them became less about what Christ has done, and it became more about their own works and their performance. And what they've effectively made is they've made their relationship with Christ a do-this-and-live covenant. They languish under this lack of assurance. They live guilt-ridden and heavy-laden lives. They're despairing over their lack of progress and holiness. And they don't see how they could be believers at all. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, describes these believers. One whose weakness and misery is so great that in the terrors of conscience and the danger of death, they behold nothing else but their works, their worthiness, and the law. And why? The, the, the fundamental problem with this. Because they, 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 they languish this way for this reason. Because they do not have a righteousness through which they can look at and believe that they are finally accepted by God. To go back and use the law in this way is to go back to captivity. The law was always meant to reveal your fallenness. The law was always meant to point you back to the Savior, but you were never meant to go back to the law as the gauge for your own righteousness. The law does instruct us in righteousness, but the law itself is not our righteousness. And if you're seeking the day when you would be righteous according to your own works, that day where you can finally look at yourself and believe yourself, I'm finally a child of God because of how well I'm performing, and I just ask you how much is enough? 
How much Bible reading is enough? How much prayer time is enough? How much sin do you have to kill? Or how many people do you have to witness to to finally arrive at this point where you say, I am a child of God now? And I don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying any of these things are bad. These things are good things. But these things were never meant to become a law by which we become righteous by. That was never the purpose of these things. See, if in order to actually be righteous under the law, you need to be a keeper of the entire law. You need to keep every single command of the Lord perfectly from the day you live, the day you were born, until the day you die. And if you can't do that, you need a righteousness from somewhere else. And look, I, I understand there's a, there's a valuable use for all the things I listed. I understand that there is a need for obedience in the Christian life. But look, I'm not speaking here of a false believer who does not care about these things. I'm speaking for a true believer, one who has see, heard the message of the law and has responded rightly to the law, but fails to understand their new relationship to the law. They have failed to understand the, the function of the promise, that the promise was always given by faith, and the fulfillment of the promise is Jesus Christ, through whom we look to in faith, who is himself our righteousness. We need to understand the promise. This is Paul's entire argument. Now look, I, I understand a lot of this has been kind of heavy theological. It is the nature of the text we're in. Paul is making a very lawyer-esque case through his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. But I want to just make it clear to you, what Paul is trying to do is demonstrate that the law had a purpose and the law was fulfilled. The law has served its purpose. But the promise was always the main state. The promise was always in center stage. The promise always pointed to Christ, and Christ was always in view with the law. This is how Paul corrects this error. This is how Paul corrects this broken relationship of the law that these Judaizers are putting the Galatians into. This is how Paul corrects the broken identity as children of God that the Judaizers are impacting the Galatian church with. The promise, the promise given to Abraham. That brings us to verse 25. We've seen the reason for the law, the purpose for the law, the function of the law. Now we look to the fulfillment of the law. Looking in verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. See, what Paul has been kind of hinting at throughout the entire section here, we've heard him say it back in verse 19, the law was added until. We've heard him say over and over again, kind of hinting at this idea that when the law serves its purpose, the law becomes obsolete. The law is done. The law is a pedagogue. When faith comes, we're no longer under the pedagogue. What Paul is stating in, unclear, in clear terms is that we are no longer under the law. The law is done. Now, I understand that that might 
that might cause some to bristle because we recognize also that the law helps to train us and show us what is pleasing to the Lord. But understand is that the law, the law in its covenant relationship, the law as a means of righteousness is done. We are not under this law anymore. So the error of the Judaizers that you must come under the law, it's ridiculous. The law always pointed to the promise. What the Judaizers are trying to do, when you have a building, you have a scaffolding that helps to build the building. What they were trying to do is point these believers back to the scaffolding. The scaffolding serves a purpose, and once the building is built, the scaffolding is gone. That's it. The law does remain. You see the, you see the apostles very often referencing the law as a means to instruct the church, but we are not under it. We use it, we look to it as a guide, but we are not under the law. And to not be under the law is not to be under the condemnation of the law. Once faith has come, the law is gone. See, Paul here has been focusing on the law. He's been kind of making his argument with this black curtain of the law, and he finally pulls it back and he directs his focus to the promise, the fulfillment of the promise, Jesus Christ. And here Paul, he corrects, he cuts right to the point, the point that the Judaizers were doing, distorting the relationship a believer has with the law, distorting the identity of believers as children of God, Paul now corrects it. And how he corrects it is by pointing to who we are in Jesus Christ. First, in no one plain terms, Paul says, we are now children of God through faith. And then Paul makes an interesting statement. Paul says, for as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now that's interesting. What does Paul mean so I, I would invite you to, to look at this with me. We're going to turn to Romans chapter 6. As I said, we're in Romans a lot today. It's a fine place to be, especially when you're looking at Galatians. Looking at verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what Paul has in view is not just simply water baptism, but is what the reality of what water baptism represents us being united with Christ in his death, united with him in his resurrection. This is what baptism points to. And then Paul goes on to say that those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is again, as Paul is pointing to, the blessed union that believers have with Christ. If you ever, if you ever want to count it and look at it, the default way that the New Testament describes a believer is to be in Christ. It occurs more often than any other term used to describe a Christian. In Christ is the default means that Paul, Paul 
the default word Paul uses to describe us. In our blessed union with Jesus Christ, we are now under a new head. We are no longer identified with Adam. We are no longer under the one who disobeyed and plunged the human race to sin. We are now united to the one who did obey. And because he obeyed, he brought eternal life to his elect. In the death and resurrection of Christ, there is a great exchange that takes place. Our sin was imputed to him, and he satisfied the wrath of God against our sin in his death on the cross. And the righteous life that Jesus Christ lived is now imputed to our account. The requirements of the law and the judgment of the law have been satisfied. The law called for our death for disobedience. Jesus satisfied that. He satisfied that requirement. The law likewise demands absolute righteousness. The law doesn't just call you not to sin. The law actually requires from you righteousness. And this is what Jesus provided. So at his death, his righteous life was imputed to us in our sin. And the wrath of God against our sin was poured out on him. He is taking it for us. So because of this union with Christ we now have, we through that union actually now receive the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ gives us two things. A new relationship to the law and a new identity as children of God. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians 3. The first, thing I've, the first time I've not taken you to Romans. All right, I'm going to go ahead and start in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. What Paul is pointing to is that when the Spirit is given to us, we are under a new ministry of the law, a far more glorious ministry of the law. And the difference of this new ministry of the law, for one, is it's not written on just tablets of stone. It is written upon the human heart. And what this gives us is the ability, the spirit-enabled ability to obey God in spirit and in truth. Faith working through love. Not simply just an external obedience that you so often see the Jews having, where Jesus described them as being whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside and dead on the inside. The Spirit actually aids us in fulfilling the true purpose of the law. Not only does we have this new ministry of the law, not only do we have this new form of the law in the new ministry of the law, we have a new relationship to the law. 
In the old law, the law was do this and live. The condition of the law was if. But the new covenant made in Jesus' blood is Jesus Christ has done it. Now we live because he's done it. It is a covenant in his blood. We have a new relationship to the law. The old law has passed and the new has come. And by the Spirit, we also have a new identity as children of God. See, Paul, later on in Galatians 4, will refer to the Spirit as the Spirit of adoption. See, the whole, one of the things at stake here is who are the true children of God? Is it those who are descended from Abraham, those who have the law? No. The true children of God are those who believe the promise, who put their trust in the promise, Jesus Christ. And when we are united to Christ, when we are cleansed from our sin, we're given the spirit of adoption, and we are now made sons and daughters of God, adopted into the household of God. Paul says that in Christ, interesting phrase here, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. We're in verse 28, I'm sorry. We're in verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I have heard this verse very grossly abused. Um, I have heard this verse pointed to as a way, as a way to justify the, the transgender madness we see in our world today, seeing that there's no more distinction of male and female. That is an appalling twisting of this verse. It is appalling. And it's appalling because it's such a, a beautiful verse. The truth it conveys to us is such a beautiful truth. So let me just comment on this. What Paul's not speaking of is the obliteration of these categories entirely. There is still male and female. There is still, in some superficial sense, Jew and Gentile, as or Jew and non-Jew, or Greek. And there is still, in some sense, slave and free. Those things still exist. But what Paul is pointing to is that our identity in Christ is transcendent of those things. They are subservient categories to who we truly are. Paul is describing that our identity as children of God is transcendent of every distinction there is in creation. And here's the implication of this. The reason our identity as children of God does this, the reason it holds such high value, is because we're not actually of this fallen world anymore. We, we have an identity that transcends creation because we are part of a new creation that is not of this world. See, think about this. The, the, fail, the, the reason the, Jew, what the Judaizers missed was they believed that they themselves were the fulfillment of the law. And it's not crazy for them to think that. God promised that in Abraham, in his offspring, all the nations will be blessed. And there is some sense where God did promise the nation of Israel. He promised that he would become a great nation, that he would give them the land of Canaan. It's not crazy to think this, but this is not the true fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. 
And just as the Jewish nation was the true fulfillment of Abraham, so the Abrahamic promise had more in mind than just a parcel of land in Palestine. For our last, last time, I'll have you guys move around today. I want you to turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. I will also be reading it if you're tired of looking around. I'm still making it there myself. All right, we'll be in verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. See, Abraham wasn't just simply looking forward to inheriting the land of Canaan. He wasn't just simply looking forward to just merely the land, but he was looking forward to the true fulfillment of the promise to him. Not just the nation of Israel, but the true son of Abraham. And what the true son of Abraham would bring. See, the Old Testament hope, what everyone in the Old Testament waiting for, was back in Genesis 3, when God was cursing the serpent, he promised a seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent. And the hope that everyone has been waiting for is who is going to return us back to the Garden of Eden? Who is going to bring us back to the Garden? Who is going to bring us back into the fellowship of our God? What Abraham looked forward to was the heavenly Jerusalem that Jesus Christ, the new Adam, provides to us. In Revelation 22, it says that every eye, the tear in everyone's eye will be wiped away. We will have in the new Jerusalem a complete and unbroken fellowship with God. The chasm that exists between us and the Lord because of our sin will be done. We will have new, redeemed, glorified bodies. And we will be with him. We will be like him. See, this is what it means to be a true heir of the promise. To be an heir of the promise is to recognize what Jesus Christ is giving us is not just simply reconciliation here and now. But it look, the salvation he gives us looks forward into eternity, and that's the end. The promise given to us is the eternal rest we have with our Lord. And just to briefly apply this, and then I'll close, brothers and sisters. As we continue in this pilgrimage through a fallen world that we do not belong in, we must remember that just as we began, so we must continue by faith. Until our faith becomes sight, we continue this walk by faith. We look and hold fast to Jesus Christ as the only hope of righteousness and the only hope of our salvation. Because one day he will return again. The son of Abraham will come back again. And he will bring our inheritance with him. Just as he promised. Let's pray together.
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we are, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. I thank you, Lord, for your word. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless this day, that you would bless our worship, that you would be blessed by our worship. I pray that we could be strengthened in faith by seeing the gospel proclaimed in so many ways today. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. Lord, and we just, again, thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you for the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. And thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.